following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. It's good to see you all this morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Our scripture reading this morning is Ezekiel and the 13th chapter. Ezekiel and chapter 13. Thank you for turning to your Bibles and following along. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Notice that, by the way. They're prophesying out of their own heart, not from God, like Ezekiel is. And he's telling them, hear the word of the Lord. So they're making, basically making stuff up we would say, out of their own hearts. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Okay, They have not seen any vision from God. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. I want you to notice again, false prophets do not say, Hello, my prophecy is false. They say, Thus says the Lord. They try to make it sound good and authoritative and true. Verse 7, Have you not seen a futile vision, and have you not spoken false divination? You say, The Lord says... But I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar. Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. There will be flooding, rain, and you, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely, when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, Where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Can I help you with this uh, Metaphor of the wall. The wall is not a literal wall. It's the prophets putting a message out there of peace and protection, and that's their kind of their wall. You know, they're depending on that. Everything will be fine. But they're giving that message and they're plastering it with untempered mortar, meaning that there's no structural integrity to it. It's not building on the rock, it's building on the sand, in other words. And, verse, uh, and it's going to fall. Verse 15. 
Thus will I accomplish my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it. That is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem and see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. Likewise, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart. Prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people of every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? And will you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, killing people who should not die and keeping people alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls there like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go, the souls you hunt like birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination. For I will deliver my people out of your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Both the men and women were involved in the false divination and prophecy and the society was really in a downhill kind of a state uh, because of that in that nation of Israel. I'll invite you this morning to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13 to begin. This message is not going to be centered in one particular text of Scripture. We should probably get some exercise for our fingers this morning in looking at a number of different passages in the Bible. The title of my message this morning is Your Fight Against Sin. And we have looked now for three weeks, this will be the fourth, at God's gracious provision for us after we finished Titus chapters 2 and 3 where we saw a lot about God's grace, but I felt that there was more that we should discuss about it and um, very practical things that we can take with us in our lives and live by day to day. And so we're looking at our fight against sin and the truth is how God's grace abounds in the daily battle against sin. How God's grace abounds in the daily battle against sin. And although I don't use those words exactly that way throughout the rest of the message, what I want you to see is that in each of the provisions that God has made for us, of which I've selected seven key ones this morning, uh, each one of those is a provision of God's grace to us. Now, he is gracious beyond measure, beyond words. He restores what has been broken. Remember Jeremiah chapter 18. He cleanses those who contritely confess their sins. Remember Psalm 51. He forgives. He does not impute iniquity to those who trust in him, Psalm 32. He shows us that we are sinful people and stand in the need of divine grace. We saw that in, oh, 
2 Samuel chapter 12 with David and the sin that he had. And we, we saw that uh, the, the knowledge itself that we stand in need of divine grace is the result of a magnificent grace in itself. God lifts us up when we're made low by our sins. God's grace teaches us to praise him and to help others do the same. God's grace teaches us not to treat him presumptuously. Remember last week, all the facets of presumptuous sin at which we looked last time? Uh, It teaches us to not think that, well, I'll just go ahead and do that and God will forgive me anyway. That attitude, it's it's not that God won't forgive. It's that attitude that is so devastating to our lives and shows a lack of self-examination and desire to serve the Lord honorably and faithfully. Finally, we learned in our series on the grace of God that God grants us power to overcome sin in our own lives. We spent quite a bit of time looking at Romans chapter 6 and how we're to consider ourselves uh, dead to sin. We're not helpless We're not hopeless. It may seem, though, to you sometimes that the deck is stacked against you. Uh, It may be stacked against you, but God's stack of grace is taller than that stack, isn't it? Yes. Uh, Some addictive sin or some long-running habit may have you by the, the throat, as it were, but we still can live holy lives for Christ and Our our desire this morning is to convey some more practical things that we can look at and do. These aren't like, you know, seven steps to uh, successful Christian living. I don't really present them that way. These are seven resources of God's grace that we have available to us to avail ourselves of so that we can live godly lives in Christ Jesus. We all struggle against sin that is so easily stirred up inside of the flesh. And what I'm going to say this morning is particularly relevant to those of us who are Christians. I have a note about those who are not yet Christians at the end of the message. But for those who know Christ died for us and and our sins, for those of us who believe in him, for those of us whose eternal futures are secure, for those who desire to live godly and to honor the Lord and Savior, that is what we are talking about this morning. These are resources for us. And I'm not speaking these words, by the way, as some perfect practitioner of all these things. I am with you. I could just uh, you know, have this recorded and tape deck up here and press play and go down there and sit where you are and listen to the very same thing that I'm preaching. And I have given you some from my own experience with Scripture and some things that I you know, was meditating on this week as I thought, what are the resources we have as Christians to help us in our battle against sin? Because I know that you have it, and I have it. We all have this, this common battle against sin. <clears throat> My first point is this one. It's not necessarily the most important, but it is something very simple and practical, and that is to memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13, okay, to memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13. If you don't have that memorized, then you need to work on it. I've given it to you here in a nice layout with five lines to it in which it says, no temptation has taken or overtaken you except such as is common to man. 
but what? God. See, that's, you've always got to go back. You know, me and I, and I'm having this struggle and all that sort of stuff, but God, we turn to God right away. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted more than or above uh, the limit of what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you can be able to bear it. Now, he doesn't say necessarily that he's going to allow you to escape it. You may bear it through endurance. In other words, you may escape through going through it. You know, there may not be a side entrance on that tunnel that you're like, man, I'd like to get out of here quick. No, you may have to go through the whole thing, but you are escaping that temptation by going through it, and the Lord can help you to do that. Now, I was looking back at my message on this verse, and I just curiously found this kind of coincidence. One year ago, minus two days, I was preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I gave you a homework assignment to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I did not think of that when I first wrote this set of notes, but then I went back and looked, and I said, hey, I wonder how many of our church family did their homework assignment. I've given you a year. Yeah, it is open book, but it should be in your head too. You don't always necessarily have an open book when you have the temptation facing you in the, in the face, you know, when it's right there upon you. So no temptation, the Bible says, is taking you. And this is comforting to us. We notice those five parts. I laid it out that way because that's helpful to memorize. You say, oh, that's a long verse. Well, it's five short parts, and you can certainly work on memorizing one or two or three of those, and before you know it, you'll have the whole thing down, which is great. Actually, the passage starts in verse 12. And if you look at verse 12, it says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the first thing you have to know about temptation is you better be humble. You had better be humble. I can't recall all of the stories that I've heard of this sort of thing, but guys who say, well, I would never do that. I would never fall in that way. And then guess what happens the next week, the next month, the next year? Yeah. Temptation demands humility. Well, we looked at Proverbs sixteen eighteen earlier this morning, and uh, those who have that that haughty spirit are about to fall, but those who will stand are those who have the humble spirit. So first of all, temptation demands humility, and then when you get into verse 13, temptation is universal to humanity. You are going to face it. It is not unique to you. What you're facing, as rare as it might even seem, maybe it's totally rare in your, in your, from your experience. You know, it's not rare. The Lord Jesus suffered temptations and things that were very difficult, outfitted him to be a sympathetic, faithful high priest to us, didn't it? Because he knows the feeling of our infirmities as a human himself. But of the billions of people on the planet, your temptations, your trials are nothing special or new. So don't think that is the case. They're not unique to you. Thirdly, God's faithfulness will overcome, help you overcome temptation. It will help you overcome. So when you're facing that question, should I or shouldn't I, 
even as instantaneous as that question might be. I want your mind to go back. No temptation is trying to seize me here except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. I do not have to give in to this temptation. I can stand against it. In fact, if you remember from last week, we said in Romans 6, we have to consider ourselves dead to that enticement, dead to that sin, dead to that allurement or that impatience or that anger or whatever it is. We are not in that same spot we were before we became Christians. So God's faithfulness helps us overcome temptation. Temptation, fourthly, can always be beaten by faith in Christ. It always can be beaten, but it, has, it can't be beaten by my own strength. I have to trust in the Lord and in His resources, of which, number one in our notes, is one of them. That very verse and that truth that God is faithful. Secondly, the second resource we have is this, that we are to know the origin and development of sin in ourselves. We are to know the origin and development of sin in ourselves. I guess uh, you kind of have to know the anatomy of sin to know a little bit of you know, something about how to deal with it, how to cut it off. Now, early in our walk with Christ, when we become a new Christian, we could be excused for thinking something like this, that my sin primarily is originated or comes from the devil. The devil made me do it. Or the world induced me to this sin. After all, you might think, as a new believer, Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and that's where their sin came from in the Garden of Eden, and he got them to disobey God. Doesn't my sin come from the same place? No, it does not. Those agents that I've mentioned, the world and the devil, are external to you, They are external to you, and they provide only opportunities and enticements to sin, but that's not where sin comes from in us. Again, they present you with situations, with opportunities, with sights, with sounds, with ideas that allure you, but that allurement comes from your heart's own vices. It comes, that allurement from the world or the devil comes from your heart's own pride, impatience, covetousness, lust, anger, selfishness, deceit, or hatred. Now, I will say that list right there, I think, is it's more important than what you might think by just reading it the first time through. The reason is because, as you see in the footnote there, I took several passages of Scripture, particularly the Ten Commandments, and Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, which says there are six, no, seven things the Lord hates. And I combined the vices that you find or that are attacked, if you will, in the Ten Commandments with those vices that are mentioned in Proverbs 6. And I I was trying to come up with a list of the different things that operate in our hearts that cause sin to arise from within us. I could have also used uh, James chapter 4, 1, where where wars and strifes come from among you, from the lusts that war in your members, 
Or we could look at what Jesus said, you know, don't you know the, the food going into your mouth doesn't defile you? It's what comes out of the heart of a man, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, all of those things, thefts. Those, those are what I'm trying to get, as, get at there is where does sin, what, what, how does it manifest itself? Where does it come from in our hearts? It comes from our own pride, our own impatience. Now, could you boil this down to maybe one word or something? Maybe you could. But as you analyze your own problems with sin, I bet that it'll fall under one of these general categories, pride, impatience, uh, selfishness, deceit, lust, anger, covetousness, hatred. Maybe you can think of one or two others and tell me about those. I'll add them to my list. We've got to have scripture for them, of course. But these arose from the study of those particular texts of scripture. And, And you know, you don't even need external allurements if I could say, situations or, or opportunities. You don't even need those from outside to induce you in your heart to sin. You can come up with ideas yourself, right in your own head, sitting in a, in a dark room with padded walls, no windows, no sound coming in or anything. Your sin is with you. You go to a monastery, you're going to carry it right in there with you. You can't escape it. And so... Sin does not come from outside, it comes from inside. James 1, 14 and 15, if you want to turn there, you can see this for yourself, tells us the kind of life cycle of sin. Look at, if you find Hebrews, go one more book, you'll find James chapter 1 and verses 14 to 15. They say this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is the devious pathway of sin inside of us. The Bible says the internal desires allure and attempt us. They entice us. And then when that happens, then desire conceives in about five seconds. Okay, it's quick. That conception process does not always take long. And then when desire conceives, then there can be a lot of machinations going on in your mind, but eventually sin will be born out of that. It may be born out in action, maybe born out just in imagination and fantasy and so on. Maybe born out in anger and hatred towards another person or impatience or so on. And then finally, when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Death is always the end result of sin. Death is the fruit of sin. And I often think of that and say, well, the fruit is sometimes, the fruit takes time to mature. And so thus I'm not dead yet. You're not. You're alive. I think of that in terms of physical death. But if you don't come to know Christ, it's going to actually end up in eternal spiritual death. And so we don't want to be on that path. We don't want to be anywhere near that. As Christians, we want to stay away from that. The problem is the heart is deceptive. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us the heart is deceitful. Any other thing you can think of that's deceptive, that's That's the top of the list. Out of it arises all these evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, thefts, lies, blasphemies, etc. Matthew 15, I 
alluded to that passage before. Your sin comes from within you. You are a sinner. That is your identity before God. Regardless of all the other identity labels you may put on yourself or others may put on you, you are a sinner. Let me just back up for one second. It just occurs to me to say this. Maybe before all of this, I should say, you have to be able to recognize sin when you see it. Some people have asked a question like, uh, is it wrong for me to cohabitate with a, a person of the opposite sex without being married? Is it wrong for me to sleep with them? They don't understand the basic biblical teaching. You have to recognize sin as such before you're going to be able to attack it, right? You're going to, you have to recognize what it is or you're going to think, well, what's the big deal? Well, that's what the world thinks. What's the big deal? But listen, the big deal is the wages of sin is death. That's the big deal. And so you better know what is and what isn't wrong and have that discernment skill sharpened so that you know. So your sin comes from within. You are a sinner. That's your identity. Before you come to Christ, I'll say it this way, you're an uncontrolled sinner. You're an uncontrolled Sinner, we might say. You are ruled by sin. But after you're born anew through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit of God, then you are a saved sinner. A saved sinner. But you're still a sinner, right? If anybody says, I don't have any sin, or I have not sinned, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying. You're making God out to be a liar. We all have sin. But we're a sinner. If we're a Christian, we're still a sinner until we go to heaven. All right, so we have to know 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's a simple step. We have to know the origin and development of sin in us, the process, the life cycle of sin, and how it begins and how it comes out. And then thirdly, we must deal with our sin, that, the, the sin that comes on quickly. Because as I was thinking about this, I was thinking somebody's going to say to me, yeah, but pastor, I don't always have a half an hour to think about what I, I just did. <laughs> You know, like it just came on quickly. I, I spit out a word. I had an attitude. I, I said something I shouldn't have. I did something. I was impatient. I was angry. I, uh, I spoke out of turn. That's what I call the sin that comes on quickly. How do I deal with the sin that comes on quickly? Like it just comes almost out of left field. You know, and you want to you wanna say, well, that wasn't really me. But as I have told our brothers before, Oh, it was you. Who are you going to blame? The person that you sinned against? It was them? It was God? It was the devil? It was an angel, a demon? No, it was within you that that came out. It's your responsibility. You have to be able to now deal with the sin that happens to you quickly. You lose your temper. You say something inappropriate at the spur of the moment. How do you fight against that kind of thing? Well, some people say... uh, Take a deep breath. Count to ten before you say something. Well, those can be helpful, but they're not the ultimate solution to the problem. You know, I mean, it is helpful to stop and think before you speak, yes. But you might stop and think for five or ten seconds and realize, yeah, I'm very angry at that person. The sin is still there inside. It's just that you decide to swallow it 
instead of blurting it out. But it's still there. You haven't actually solved the problem. They're incomplete solutions as they rely upon the strength of the flesh rather than the strength of God. So first of all, genuinely confess those sins that come upon you quickly. You confess that to God and whom you sinned against foremost, by the way, and you confess your sin to those you have harmed. And then trust in his forgiveness, 1 John 1.9. He's faithful, again, there it is, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be specific in your apology, both to God and to the person you've harmed. I'm sorry for fill in the blank, not just I'm sorry. You know, what does that mean? I'm sorry that you feel bad. And that's not, you're not sorry for that. That's their, that's their side of the equation. I'm sorry that I did X to you, that I said that wrong thing. That was incorrect. Express the remorse that you feel. You do feel remorse when you sin, right? If you don't, then you have a bigger problem. You have a bigger problem, a really big problem. You need to appeal to God for help. And also, as you confess your sin to your brother or sister, your spouse, your child, your parent, not only are you feeling remorse and you're being specific about it, but you might do well to express the steps that you're going to take to avoid doing that in the future. Ask them for accountability. Say, look, I'm going to try to do this and respond in this better way the next time that something like this comes up. Okay, so we're confessing our sins, we're feeling remorse for those sins, we're expressing what steps we'll take to not repeat that sin in the future. So that's once the quick sin comes upon you, how to handle that. But what about beforehand? Well, pray for God's help every day. I'd say don't just wait till the end of the day to confess your sins to God. Pray at the beginning to ask Him to help you And pray many times a day. Rely on the in-resident Spirit of God to help you. God, through your Spirit, please, restrain my tongue, restrain my emotions, restrain my evil heart from whence those things arise. And then do a careful study of passages that deal with your particular sin problem. Both before you sin... And after you do so, the last you did so the last time. A few starting points uh, I've given you a suggestion here. A few starting points on our church website. You might say, "Well, I, I have a problem with complaining," and you can go there and there's a page that says Bible help in one of the in the Bible menu, and there's a 40 topics or something that I've put there, and I've put a bunch of Bible verses next to each one of those, and you can look at those or hover over them with your little mouse and it'll pop up the verse and you can look at it and study those verses. Think about them. You can use your Bible software or online to search. You can ask you know, me, your pastor, or if you're online, a pastor that you know, a trusted brother or sister for additional resources. The benefit of working like this in the Bible is to really think God's thoughts about your struggle of what it is. Going over and over the material will help you because you will be filled with God's word about it. So, for example, if you have outbursts of anger, spend some time thinking about verses like this one in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 
16. Proverbs 16 is just loaded, by the way. 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Or Proverbs 14 and 29, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. You get angry quickly? Look at these verses. Look at uh, Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or look at uh, Proverbs 25.28, where the scripture says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. These are just some, some ideas, you know. Be angry and sin not, the scripture says. Put away malice and anger and all that stuff, Ephesians 4.31 says. Or if you tend to complain, do a study of all the verses that mention complaining. <clears throat> and by the way, you'll find a bunch of them in like Exodus and Numbers, where the people of Israel complained. I've given you some of those verses here. And the outcome wasn't really all that good, was it? Ooh, sometimes it was devastating. Over and over and over again, you know, complaining, no water, no food, no meat. You took us out here to kill us. And, you know, this manna, they start complaining about the provision God made for their food and so on. And you take too much to yourself, Moses, and, and Aaron and Miriam themselves as well, complaining. Bad news. The Bible says do all things without complaining and disputing, Philippians 2 and 14 and and so on, a whole bunch of things like this. First Corinthians 10, we were there earlier, and it says in verse number 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And you say to yourself, maybe, well, I'm not sure what my current study project should be. I'm not really sure what I'm struggling with. Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Ask your spouse. Ask a close friend. Just be ready to be humble when you do that, asking. Yeah. Number four, another grace of God to help you in your battle against sin. Read your Bible regularly. Read your Bible regularly. As you read Scripture, you will encounter passages that deal with the state of your soul. You are reading the Bible, right? Regularly, right? I hope you're not just relying on my scripture reading, Ezekiel 13 this week, as your portion of scripture. That's great that you listen to that and pay attention to that, but if that's all you're getting, you're greatly impoverished from where you need to be. I say this in my notes, and I'll say it here as well, and I believe this. If you're not reading your Bible regularly, don't whine that you're having a hard time with sin in your life. Just don't complain. Just quit the whining. You have resources available. And you say, I'm, Pastor, I'm struggling with... Okay, are you reading your Bible regularly? No. What am I supposed to do with that? I, I don't have a magic formula. If somebody comes with that... You know, get into your Bible. There's a, that's a kind of a formula. 
You read that thing over and over and over. And I can give you some passages like we just talked about to study, but you can't complain if you're struggling against sin, but you're not in your Bible. Obviously, you know, obviously, if I could be sarcastic for a moment, you must be spending your time doing something far more important than reading the Bible. Sarcasm aside, what does Bible reading do for me anyway? Well, what does reading do for us? You know, when you read, you think. I hope you think. <laughs> you college students out there are smiling at me, I know. You're going over these pages. Man, I don't know what this is saying, but I'm reading it. <laughs> when you read, you think. When you read the Bible, you think the Bible. And what is the Bible? It's God's Word. So, you, you know, the Bible tells us what God has thought already. It tells us what he has said, what he wants us to ponder. He tells us about the history of his people, the work of his son, and all of that. So when you read scripture, you're thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking God's guidance, God's history, God's analysis of things, God's wisdom, God's direction. When you read the Bible, you're thinking the Bible, and the Bible is full of all of those things. This is far better, by the way, than thinking about useless or sinful things or not thinking at all. You know, trying to empty your mind, you know, that's, that's a foolish idea. Fill your mind with things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Be filled with the word of God. And over the course of time, such reading, which is thinking, will begin to change how you think. Humility, coupled with the work of the Spirit of God, the divine teacher, and with the help of other Christians who are teachers, you, you'll change because your, your thinking will affect beliefs and beliefs will affect your actions in a long pattern of thinking and beliefs and actions equals character, doesn't it? The consistent character comes out of that consistent reading of Scripture. I'm here to tell you firsthand, over the course of a long period of time, reading Scripture consistently transforms your thinking. It changes your life. It has done that for me so that I can see things through the lens of Scripture and things that would come to try to deceive, you can see through them a lot more easily than what you would if you were not familiar with Scripture. Some of the, pe- some of the questions people ask from the Bible show that they are not in their Bible as much as they need to be. And I encourage you to be in that Bible. Don't be an uninformed person about these matters. When you read Scripture, by the way, you are learning and thinking about truth. Psalm, uh, not Psalm, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Despite all of the attacks on truth today and even people in the highest levels of our government talking about your truth and my truth and everybody else's truth, that's all foolishness. Okay? There is truth. There is divine, absolute truth, period. And if you, don't, if you don't live your life by that, it's going to be a mess. But in any case, there is truth. To be sanctified, by the way, means to be made more holy, to be purified, to live more like Jesus Christ, and that's what the Bible does. Your word sanctifies. Jesus prayed, and his disciples, as his disciples, we ought to embrace that as well. Now, where does the Bible say to read the Bible? 
Because you, you know, if you're if you're kind of clever, you might scratch your head and say, "Yeah, but pastor, uh, they didn't actually have a Bible like this." I mean, many many people, you know, couldn't access the scrolls in the tabernacle or the temple uh, for years and years, even up to you know the 16 and 17 and 1800s. Bibles were super expensive. You know, I have a King James replica Bible at the house. It's about that big and about as thick as I can, you know, I don't know what that is, seven, eight inches across, 25 pounds plus, a replica of that. And they would take that Bible or ones like it and they would chain it to the pulpit because it was, you know, what we would cost thirty, forty thousand $40,000 in our modern dollars to make and print that Bible. And you say, people didn't have access to the Bible. Well, they did, you know. It's a little harder to get at, but you know what? We don't have that problem. We don't have that problem at all. You can get a, a Bible free on your phone. We're working and providing 47 different language groups free Bibles for their phones in our little technology team that we have. You have all kinds of access. But where does the Bible talk about reading the Bible? Well, Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's got to have something to meditate on. He's got to know something okay, about it. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is, is alive. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the reading of Scripture. I take that to be public reading, but certainly applies private reading. This law shall not depart from your mouth. God tells Joshua in Joshua 1.8, you shall have this word with you. Psalm 119, 9 and 11, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's reading. There's thinking. Psalm uh, 119.16, a verse that I don't have memorized, but let me take you there. Psalm 119, right in the middle of your Bible, approximately. Psalm 119, the longest chapter. It's not really a chapter, it's a psalm, but we'll call it a chapter. The Bible says in Psalm 119.16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will not forget your your word. And then in, in one of the, I think, most interesting portions of the Bible, talk about the Bible not seeing a separation of church and state. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are several verses there in which God, through Moses, commands when Israel gets a king, the king is to take a copy of the law that the Levites have and he is to write his own copy. And he is to read from it every single day. You think David did that? You think Solomon did that? Anybody missed a few days? Missed a few of the parts like, you know, God made um, male and female and being joined together as one flesh and those things that they messed up on and so many other things. How are we going to live right if we don't know God's word? We're just, it's impossible. So I find that very interesting, that uh, in the state of Israel, the religion had high place. The king had to have a copy of the law of the Lord, a copy that he wrote himself by hand. Oh, how I wish I could enforce that principle. 
upon our own leaders today. That they would write out a copy and they would read daily God's word. Number five, in our fight against sin, another grace is that we can dedicate ourselves to, to the church. Speaking very practically here now, just a couple of thoughts on this. The time you spend in church will be far more productive than if you spend it in other ways. In church, you replace the time that you could be sinning with time that you can worship and learn Christ and find counsel and be encouraged by other believers, and all this is going to help with your stubborn sins. Besides, Hebrews 10 directs us to be gathering together with the saints in person to worship the Lord together. Your participation will not only help you, it will also help others. Uh, I think people have the attitude sometimes like, what am I getting out of this? What, What service or benefit does the church give to me? And if I don't see enough you know, relative to, say, we're doing kind of a pros-cons analysis, if I don't see enough benefit to it for me, then I just drop it. Because there are other things, you know, that I have to do. My to-do list is getting kind of big, and I need to spend time on that. And, and there's a consumerist or consumerism mentality. That's not at all what being part of the family of God is about, about being a consumer. You are a participant You are an active member. In fact, Hebrews 10.24 talks about serving others, encouraging others. Our our ministry as members is to one another. It's not just what do I get from listening to the pastor. It's what we do together as a church family and how we can serve one another. I've told many people, just the fact that you show up, what, what do they say? Half of life is just showing up or something like that. You know, I tell, I tell students, my sons, I learned this myself. If you want good grades in school, just show up. And, of course, listen. But don't skip or don't be absent. You're present in body but absent in spirit, right? Yeah. Half of it's showing up. When you show up, you are a blessing to your fellow saints. You might kind of in a false, humble kind of way, say, what, what, what does that mean? Like, how could, I, how could that be? You don't even know that your presence there with a smile on your face could uplift some saint who needs help. A firm handshake, a smile, a welcome, a warm embrace. You just don't know what that does to other people. You just don't know. You could save some soul from a whole lot of hurt by just showing up that day. And I encourage you to think about how, not what do I get out of it? What do I give into it? What do I do to serve this body? Dedicate yourself to your church. And as somebody recently said to me, you know, when you do that, there's a lot less room for sin and a lot less room for sniping, and a lot less room for griping, complaining, and all of that, because you're focused on serving and loving and helping. Number six, your battle against sin, another grace that God gives us is that we pray always. 
Do I have to convince you of that? No, I don't have to convince you of the fact of that. I might have to convince you of the doing of it. Certainly we know. Luke 18.1 says, Jesus told a parable that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. Pray with all prayer and supplication for all the saints, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 6, in that capstone on the armor of God passage in which he's trying to help us to be able to stand against the schemes, the methods of the devil there's not much better time you can, a way you can spend your time than praying, is there? I'm not putting Bible reading time and prayer time and church time against each other. I'm just saying when you have nothing else to do or when you have a whole bunch of other stuff to do, praying is a very good way to use that time rather than checking off another item on your to-do list. Prayer draws you closer to God. In it, you invoke God's blessing, which will move you farther ahead than mere productivity in this life. Prayer is how we show our dependence on God. Christians, dear ones, we don't have, we do have, in a sense, but we don't have ultimately a can-do attitude. We have a can't-do attitude. I'm not talking about like, you know, you can't do this project around your house or whatever, but ultimately you can't do anything apart from the power of God. John 15, 5 says, abide in the vine, because if you don't abide, you can do nothing, nothing of spiritual value, nothing to accomplish the things for the Lord. Prayer is how we communicate to God. Bible reading is how we hear from God. Okay? We don't hear from God when we pray. Okay? God doesn't talk back to us. Get that idea out of your mind. Okay? You may have thoughts while you pray, Thank God for those. And as those are informed by the scriptures, very good. But that's not God like talking to you, okay? You pray, that's one way to God. The Bible is God back to us. And then finally, I want to say this. We close this morning. Devote yourself to God. This final grace is that which helps us the most against our sin. What do you love more? Your sin or your God? Do you love your pet temptations or do you love your Savior? Do you love your feelings of self-satisfaction or do you love rather a clean conscience before the Spirit of God? God instructs his people to love him above all else and they have no other higher priority than him in their lives. Exodus chapter 20. No other gods before me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody else, no other thing, no other system, no, no higher power. It's God and God alone. If you have an addiction to sin, if you have some habit of sin, that means not only is there a shortage of holiness, but there's also a shortage of love for God. There's also wrong worship because we worship what we love. Handling sin from the standpoint of the flesh is totally unworkable. Colossians chapter 2 tells us the regulations, touch not, taste not, handle not, are useless against the indulgence of the flesh. Galatians 3.3, 3, Paul says, Why do you think you can begin in the spirit and then continue in the flesh? 
Those things only provide a very limited help and do not guide you to know what to do. You know, it's like a diet that says don't eat this and don't eat that and don't eat this other thing, and you say, well, what can I eat then? You know, I can't eat, I can't eat sugar and I can't eat carbs and I can't eat meat and, you know, and I'll, who knows what. Vegetables will be bad next, you know, and what do I do? How, how do I overcome cravings? The diet doesn't tell you that. What, what's, what are the right things to eat? What's the right amount? What are the best kinds of food? Is there any enjoyment in this diet? And similarly in, in life, when we're talking about our, our fight against sin, we can't do it in the flesh. You can't do it with mere laws, with mere rules. Instead of a law-based motivation system, love for God and love for your neighbor is a far more powerful motivator. Of course, if you love yourself more than you love God and others, then that's going to break down. Ask yourself, if I continue doing this thing, this kind of thing in my life, whatever it is, whatever sin, is that really displaying love for God and love for my spouse and love for my children or love for my parents or my siblings and my neighbors? Or do I just really love myself? Do I just love myself? As I said at the beginning, the above scriptural guidance is for Christians, and there's a lot more to say. We can put to death the sins of the flesh. We can deal with transgressions very sternly. And maybe you can think of some others and uh, let me know. For non-Christians, there's only one remedy, and that is to call on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Seek his pardon. Turn from your sin. Turn from all of it and believe in Christ, and you will be saved. Decide to follow him instead of your own wicked cravings. He receives sinners such as you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will help you on the path of victory in the battle against sin. When you become a Christian, then you'll be engaged in the fight, and you'll be able to use all these graces and resources that we've talked about this morning. But until then, if you're not a Christian, you have no resources for the battle. I encourage you Get those resources and make use of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will bless and keep us, help us, Lord. Watch over us. Help us to make use of these graces that you've provided from 1 Corinthians 10.13 to loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.